You're listening to Is God Mother, a podcast exploring the World Mission Society Church of God. Thank you for joining us again. So far, we've covered what is a cult and how to engage with members who approach you. We talked last week about the history and core beliefs of the cult, the World Mission Society Church of God. And I know today we're going to get to talk about some of their main claims, why they think the Bible supports their view of God as mother and other beliefs. I'm super excited about this episode. I think this is kind of the meat and potatoes of like what you need to know about this cult and just kind of exploring, you know, how they take some of the scripture out of context, but also like exploring it in context, but also, you know, scripture that directly contradicts what what they're saying too. Yeah, I've been most excited for this episode. When I thought about how to frame this conversation, I decided I wanted to frame it in terms of what we call biblical hermeneutics. That's just the agreed on ways to study and read and interpret the Bible. Mm -hmm. There's lots of great books that are all about that. But the book that I'm going to be referring to most often is called Knowing Scripture, and it's by R.C. Sproul. In it, in one section, he gives all these practical rules for interpreting the Bible. So before we get into kind of the major claims that the World Mission Society Church of God makes, I wanted to just give like a short crash course in how to read the Bible, I guess. Framework for how to study scripture on your own. Yes, totally. And it's not exhaustive, but it's, I'm just pulling a few things that have been really helpful for me and that I think might apply to some of the ways that they do bring up scripture. Mm -hmm. I wanted to share this quote from that book. R.C. Sproul just says, the Bible does not take on some special magic that changes basic literary patterns of interpretation, meaning the same rules for how you would interpret literature still apply. Not that the Bible isn't special or divine or infallible or any of these other things. It's it's certainly a more complex book, but I think that just means you need these skills more than ever. <laughs> um, you need to be able to read a book of the Bible and identify things like who is the author? Who's the audience? What's the context? What genre of literature am I reading? What's the literary style? What are the main themes? Um, these are all things you would learn in a like a basic English class too, like mm-hmm. studying the background of the book and the, the author and the context and all of that too. Yeah, we're talking about agreed upon ways to read any book. So there are parts that are meant to be read differently and there are clues which point to how you should read it. For example, if I open up to Mark chapter 11 and I start reading, I can pretty quickly say, this isn't poetry. It's not a parable. It's not written in simple, nondescriptive language to convey a point. It doesn't seem to be prophecy. I don't see anywhere where God is speaking to someone and and saying, hey, say this to my people. What I do see in Mark chapter 11 is a story with a lot of detail, a lot of references to real people. Oh, I'm sorry. And I'm I've been saying Mark chapter 11, but what I meant is Mark chapter 15. But if you look at Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 20, I'll just read a couple verses to show you what I mean. It's talking about Jesus' crucifixion, and it says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. So we came to this passage out of the blue. So we haven't even stopped to identify the author, the audience, 
But by looking back a little bit, we can see that it's Jesus who's being talked about. This is part of the account of his crucifixion. And you can see just from what I've read, it's got a lot of detail. They took off a purple cloak and then they put his own clothes back on. A lot of specific names. Too. A lot of specific names. Yeah, they didn't just stop any man, but they stopped Simon of Serene and made him carry the cross. They even give the names of his sons. And it's as if these clues are included because they're saying to the original audience, if you don't believe me, what I'm telling you in this story, you can go ask Alexander and Rufus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They'll say the same thing I'm saying. It tells us where they brought Jesus, you know? Um, So all that to say, we have pretty obvious clues that this is a narrative and it's meant to be taken as a true account of something that actually happened. That's the genre. And understanding even what genre of literature you're reading is really important. I love the Bible Project, and they have a, mm-hmm. a short series on how to read the Bible. It's a video series. And if I remember right, it's like each genre has a video explaining, yeah. like, here's what biblical poetry looks like. Here's where you can find it in the Bible. Here's why we differentiate it from prophecy, prophecy or narrative, narrative or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And so, and they're really, man, they're really engaging and they're fast and they're great. So also in knowing scripture, uh, R.C. Sproul gives us some practical rules for how to interpret the Bible. He gives a lot, but I wanted to point out a few of his practical rules. One of his rules is interpret the historical narratives by the didactic. We're talking about genres again here. A historical narrative is a lot like what we just talked about with Mark chapter 15, right? It's a story. It's meant to be taken like the real happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Didactic literature is just meaning that which teaches or instructs. So um, a lot of Paul's writings in the yeah. epistles is didactic literature because he's going to say it sounds like a lot of the New Testament stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Most of the letters written to churches are for the express purpose of teaching, instructing, correcting, rebuking. Mm-hmm. You know, so that would be didactic. And so yeah, the rule again is interpret historical narratives by the didactic. So you're saying the uh, books of the Bible that would be considered historical narratives, so the gospel accounts and even stuff in the Old Testament too, those should be, you should look at those with the lens of what the didactic says. So the instructional books, how they say, like you should use that kind of as a framework to talk about or to interpret the the historical narrative. Yes. It's not a perfect fit where you can just split up books so easily because Mm -hmm. even within the gospels, you've got Jesus is teaching, you know, but then you've got, and then he was on the way to Galilee, you know, you've got historical narrative. Um, And even within Paul's letters, you've got Paul writing to churches, but then you've also got sometimes a history of where he Mm -hmm. went and what he did when he went there. But yes, generally we use the teaching books or the teaching passages that are explicit and clear and meant to instruct and give clarity to interpret historical narrative, not the other way around. Historical narratives need this guardrail because while we obviously can learn from narrative and we're meant to learn from it, sometimes it's tempting to learn what it wasn't meant to teach, Hmm. to grab pieces of a narrative and make false inferences or to try to find doctrine in narrative. And one really helpful aspect of this that uh, R.C. Sproul shares is that Jesus, when he was incarnate on earth, um, he was living during a different time in redemptive history. So he was required to fulfill all the laws Mm -hmm. of the old covenant, including dietary and ceremonial laws. So he kept the Sabbath. 
although like he did redefine in many ways what the Sabbath really meant. And he, you know, contradicted the the Pharisees. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So he didn't just keep it. He's the Lord of it. Yeah. So that's a big difference between him and us. He got circumcised, you know, like he followed the law and it's tempting to want to say, oh, well, then obviously if I'm following Jesus, I need to do that too, because I can see in scripture that he was following the law in Mm -hmm. these ways. I must need to keep the Sabbath and I must need to, you know, circumcise my children to keep the religious right or whatever. And the problem with that is in the didactic teachings, the letters written by Paul, who was an apostle and written for the express purpose of teaching and correcting the church, he says things like in Galatians 5, if someone now becomes circumcised for the reasons of trying to keep the law, that person is actually renouncing or disavowing what Christ has done and bringing himself back under the curse of Mm. Old Testament law. So you can't just follow the example of Jesus all the time in historical narrative. Mm -hmm. You need the teachings of Paul to shine light. There's so many things that were part of Jesus's mission that aren't a part of our mission Mm -hmm. as his followers. He was meant to come and be and do everything that we, I'm saying we, that Jews, you know, had Mm -hmm. been asked to do but really couldn't fulfill. And so Jesus comes and fulfills the law perfectly. Jesus comes and lives this perfect life. He follows everything to the letter and the spirit of the law. You know, all the ways that we fall short, he is righteous and good. And that was part of his mission because all along he knew he was going to die for us. And so when he died, you know, we didn't just get a clean slate, but we get his perfect record. Mm -hmm. So there are important reasons why Jesus is, you know, you see passages where he is going to a feast or he is observing the Sabbath or he's doing these things to fall. He was circumcised. Anyway, does that make sense? Yeah. And so I can see how in like knowing the didactics uh, literature and using that to kind of have that lens to look at the historical narrative, especially of the account of Jesus, like we can see that we're in the new covenant now. And Mm -hmm. so there are differences and it's kind of, it brings you to a right understanding of what Jesus has done and what that means for us as believers now in today's age. So I'm glad you brought up the new covenant because I think that's important in thinking about the claims that the World Mission Society Church of God is making and how we would come at, you know, kind of those same scriptures or those same ideas very differently. The one thing that we do agree with is that we are in a new covenant. They would say the same thing, like we're under the new covenant, but how we define the new covenant is so different. So while they would define the new covenant as not only what Jesus did, but in their words, they would say it's also what Jesus taught. And they list keeping the Passover, keeping the feasts, keeping the Sabbath, and women wearing veils. Every time I hear that list, I can't help but just think, what an interesting and arbitrary list of things to choose. There's nowhere in the New Testament that it's like, hey, you have to do these like four things Mm -hmm. in addition to believing in Jesus. Um, I think they kind of pick and choose in a fashion that's pretty interesting. We do agree that there's a new covenant. And so I wanted to just read like a few snippets from some of these major parts in the Bible that talk about the new covenant, because I want to look at how the new covenant is described and defined. Mm -hmm. And while these passages don't give specific, here's what's included, here's what isn't, the way that it's described and defined, I think is going to help us just lay a groundwork for what they um, mean by the new covenant. What they mean by the new covenant and what we mean by it, mm-hmm. yeah. So 
Jeremiah 31. I don't know if people listening take notes or whatever, but I, I kind of always feel like the Bible has some chapters and passages that are just like pivotal understanding the whole thing. And I, I always tell people like, write these couple down because like this is... <laughs> these are the important ones. <laughs> yes. This is how you're going to... They like really connect the dots with mm-hmm. certain things. And so I'm going to list a few of them, but one of them is Jeremiah 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Which, okay, let me just stop really quick and say right now that in this passage, once again, Um, The people of Israel are seen as the bride of the Lord, which is going to be relevant later. (laughs) Because the Royal Mission Society Church of God says that we're not the bride, Mm -hmm. that the mother God is the bride. But there's so many places when it is so obvious that the church is the bride. Anyway, keep reading in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer will each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So I know that's a lot, but that's Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And what I just wanted to point out, the big way that he describes it is that it's not like the Old Covenant. Mm -hmm. And what was the Old Covenant like? It was a lot of keeping rules and following commands. Mm -hmm. This new covenant, it's not like the old one. And he even goes on to say, the old one you broke. Mm -hmm. And then we're to understand. You did a really bad job. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. The old one you broke. You had these rules to keep. You couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But this new one is not going to be like a law that you try to keep, but a law that I write on your heart. Mm -hmm. And no longer is someone going to be like, come on, know the Lord. You're, You're just going to be able to know. Because he says, I will forgive, or for, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So this new covenant is not going to be like the old one. It's going to be defined by this great forgiveness of sin. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer defined by keeping the law, but it's defined by God's forgiveness of us. Yes, seemingly. final forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. I would say we can see that from Jeremiah 31. Mm -hmm. Another passage I wanted to go to is Ezekiel 36. We're just going to look at a small piece of it. It's verses 26 through 27. This is where he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Hmm. So this is touching a little bit on kind of the Holy Spirit and his, I would say, new role in the new covenant. Yeah. Not that he didn't exist and now he's going to exist, but that in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit, and we see from other passages, is going to be given to us to mm-hmm. be a seal on us as a guarantee that we belong to the Lord, but also to to convict us, to live in us. We're going to be the new temple. We no longer are going to have to go to a temple and visit with the Lord or mm-hmm. or make ourselves right before him. But now we are going to be so right with him because of Jesus's righteousness that we can claim that we have the literal spirit of God inside living of inside of us, which is huge. And so I think this is what Ezekiel 36 is pointing to, mm-hmm. the new heart and the new spirit that we're going to get. I, we're going to mention this later, but the World Mission Society Church of God 
they do not hold to the Trinity in the same way that mm-hmm. you and I do. Yeah, you mentioned in a, one of the past episodes that they're what we would consider modalists, right? Yes. Believe that God just appears as different ways in the Old Testament and Jesus and then in the New Testament as the Holy Spirit. They definitely use modalistic language mm-hmm. on their website. I'm I'm not sure if they would say, like, yeah, that's what we believe. So I'm interested even, like, what what did they even say about, like, we have the Holy Spirit living in us all the time? Mm -hmm. Not sometimes when God shows himself as the Spirit, but all the time as a seal that we belong to him and all of that. And one more passage I wanted to, to reference, which talks about the New Covenant is in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, it says... Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This same passage, I'm not going to read all of it, but it basically goes on to say that the ministry of the Spirit in the New Covenant is far more glorious than the ministry of condemnation, and that now we have the ministry of a righteousness. Even though the Old Testament law came in a lot of glory, that after receiving it, the Israelites couldn't look at Moses' face. That's how glorious Mm -hmm. it was when it came. But that still more glorious is the new ministry of righteousness that we have because it's the ministry of righteousness and not of condemnation. So we're no longer condemned, no longer the letter of the law, but now we have righteousness and it's the spirit of the law that we follow. (laughs) Along with all the passages which talk about how salvation, you know, we talked about this a lot last time, Mm -hmm. about salvation is in Christ alone, it's through faith, it's only grace. Mm-hmm. You know, Ephesians says that it's not by works. It's uh, nothing from you. No one can boast or brag about why they made it to heaven or anything like that. That you put those verses about salvation being in Christ alone, along with these ideas about what the new covenant looks like. And I just don't know how you can come out on the other side still believing that, yes, it's faith in Jesus, but it's also keeping this, this, Mm -hmm. and this. It's also keeping the Sabbath still, though. It's also still keeping the Passover. Mm -hmm. It's also still keeping the feast. It just doesn't make sense with the whole story of Scripture. At the beginning, sometime, I talked about how biblical theology is going to really help us Mm -hmm. in having a good understanding of the Bible. And here again, it's this idea of biblical theology. How does the whole Bible fit together? What are the themes that we see progress and fulfill and culminate in Christ and the New Covenant? is one of them. It was pointed towards in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as this beautiful new covenant, not like the old, not one. Like the old one. Righteousness, not condemnation, not the letter, but the spirit, you know? Um, so It's great. There's so many differences between how things worked yeah, before Christ and after Christ too. One more passage I wanted to point towards, albeit briefly, is Hebrews 8. 8 through 13. And in this passage, the author of Hebrews is actually quoting what we just read in Jeremiah 31, where it says, it's not like the covenant I made with their fathers. Um, They didn't continue in my covenant, but it's a new covenant and I'm going to put their law on their hearts and I'm going to be merciful towards them. I'm going to forgive their sins. So that passage that we just read in Jeremiah 31, it's quoting that. And then at the end, he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete Hmm. and what is becoming obsolete and growing old 
is ready to vanish away. So I, this is a little bit hard to like put your finger on the significance of, but I wanted to bring this up because for one reason, like the book of Hebrews was written to Jews Mm -hmm. whose main problem as they're trying to follow Christ was their like unwillingness to let go of the law and the old covenant and, and their unwillingness to see rightly how Christ has fulfilled that law. The whole book is like, Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is the new and better Moses. Jesus fulfills the covenants. Jesus fulfills all these laws. In following Christ, you're not ignoring the law, but you're celebrating the culmination of the law, you know, is kind of the thrust of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is saying of the author of Jeremiah, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and van- and ready to vanish away. It's almost like he's saying, it's not even now in this moment when Christ came and died on the cross that established the new covenant. Even in Jeremiah 31, when God is speaking of the new covenant to come, even in speaking of it, that covenant was already becoming obsolete and growing old and getting ready to vanish away. And now here we are. We see that it, it is vanished away and now the new covenant is here so all that to say we're we're talking about the new covenant as something very different from the old and the hebrews you know that are being written to remind me a lot of you know someone who might follow something like the world mission society church of god it's like no but i also have to do this this and this and the writer over and over is like but but you don't though you know and that's (laughs) what i'm trying to make clear jesus is Jesus is enough. He's better than everything. He's bigger and he's the culmination, Um, which is something I think a lot of cults must not understand because there's almost always an element to cults where they're saying, yeah, Jesus, but then also this other book that came later, Mm -hmm. more revelation is needed Mm -hmm. or truth was lost and we've found it. So I think the way the World Mission Society Church of God does this is by saying Jesus was great, but we also now have Christ on Sang Hung, who is the second incarnate Christ. Mm-hmm. And if you don't pray in also his name, then you are not actually following the Lord like you think you are, and you're not right with the Lord. And then we also have God the Mother. And so I just think that if anyone read the Bible rightly and understood how it is all pointing to Jesus, you can't then just be like, oh, and here's this other guy, you know? And I I think maybe why they get away with it is because we don't have this good understanding of how the whole Bible fits Mm -hmm. together. And we think that all we need is somebody to just come and say, yep, I'm divine. I know secrets of the, the world and universe. And I think they look at the Bible and they say, oh, Christ is coming again. And here he is. That We have just no foundation whatsoever to think that Christ is going to come back like that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, now might be a good time to talk about even (laughs) why can't this man on Sung Hung be Christ who came again? Like, why can't that be true from scripture? There's a few passages that talk about what Jesus returning is going to be like. And so I just want to look at a couple of those Mm -hmm. and point out, you know, the kinds of things that it says, how it describes it and all of that. Oh, that has not happened yet. Yes. (laughs) So 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, it talks about when Christ uh, will return at the end time for his people and bodily raise those who have died. 
Um, so I'll just read it. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That doesn't sound quite like what they're saying on day, does it? <laughs> yeah, I think the differences are pretty obvious. This is saying that the Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. When it says the voice of an archangel, um, we think of angels in all sorts of interesting ways, little babies that play trumpets mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But in the Bible, we if we look at all the encounters with angels, the first instinct is always like great fear mm-hmm. and trembling. Yeah. And so I think we're to understand that he's going to come in a way that's very obvious Mm -hmm. and maybe pretty scary. And he's going to come in the clouds. And that's not the only part that talks about that either. Let me take you now to Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. This is right when Jesus is about to leave his disciples and ascend into heaven. It says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, the same Jesus, not a new Jesus, mm. not, not Christ on Song Hong, <laughs> but this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So again, he's going to come back in the same way that he ascended. And it seemingly, pretty clearly, is saying that he ascended into the cloud, that he was taken up just as Elijah was, you know, taken up, whisked yeah. into heaven. Nobody rose from the dead when Christ on Sun Hung was born and came to, you know, yeah. which is what the other verse was talking about, people rising from the dead. Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. One more passage I want to take you to, Matthew 24. And uh, my Bible has the title, The Abomination of Desolation over what's going to happen. And then the next title is The Coming of the Son of Man. So We're talking about events that have to do with the end times. I'm going to start in verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So we'll stop there. I love this because, first of all, it's talking about false Christs Mm -hmm. and false (laughs) prophets and how a lot of them are going to arise. And honestly, we see that now. And so, you know, we've talked all about all these pseudo-Christian cults, you know, all the prophets. Um, the Mormons got prophets, the Jehovah's Witnesses got people who say, I've heard from the Lord, I'm a prophet. Around 60 people living today just Mm -hmm. in South Korea who say, I'm divine. We know that this was going to happen. And it 
doesn't say, if someone says, look, here's the Christ, question him. You know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't say like, go out and question him or see if he does miracles Mm -hmm. or see if his teaching is in line with scripture or any of that. Mm -hmm. It, it doesn't even, it says, don't Don't believe (laughs) it. Don't go for as the lightning comes from the East and shines as far as the West will be the coming of the son of man. So we've already seen from scripture, right? He's going to come in the clouds with the voice of an archangel. Like it's probably going to be terrifying but i think what we can say from all these passages together is it's going to be extremely obvious Mm -hmm. you don't need to go out and investigate a new christ because when christ comes back first of all it'll be the same christ (laughs) not some new one right but it will be so obvious and probably terrifying and glorious him coming back on the clouds Mm -hmm. like it will be that moment where no one can deny now that you are real and you are God. I mean, that just hits me so hard looking at scripture that anyone would try to claim I'm Christ. And how clearly it says in Matthew, like, don't, don't even give it a thought. Like, don't go, don't believe them. Yep. Yeah. It's going to be like lightning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all the times when Jesus says like, nobody knows the time or the day. And which is funny because we already talked about how almost every pseudo-Christian cult has something in the history where a prophet's like, God told me the time when the world's going to end. Mm-hmm. It's going to end right now. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't, you know? And yeah. it's like, what? Do you, you're, nobody knows the time. Wait, you think Sounds nobody... to know. You think nobody but you? That's what you think that means? No. <laughs> nobody knows. So we talked about how the World Mission Society Church of God believes in this new covenant, but defines it differently. And that one of the things they say you have to do in order to have salvation is to keep the Passover. Mm -hmm. And we've also been referencing and talking a lot about how Christ is the culmination of the whole Bible. Everything points to him um, and what that looks like. And so I actually wanted to talk for a minute about the Passover in particular and how Christ is the culmination of this yeah. and why we don't keep the Passover mm-hmm. anymore. So we know that Jews had to keep it, right? Um, it's one of the feasts laid out in the Old Testament. And the intent of keeping it is great. Like, yeah. just like all the feasts, they're all rooted in remembering what God has done for his people. Egypt. Yeah. Honoring him for the great acts that he's done um, and who he is. And yeah, the Passover was established right towards the end of the whole conflict in Egypt of the Israelites, you know, being slaves and then they were rescued and the sea is parted. And most everyone knows at least a snippet of that story. (laughs) Um, Moses goes to Egypt and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. We see plague after plague after plague. And the last plague is the death of the firstborn of every household. Only Moses tells the people, like, God is giving you a way to be spared from this coming certain death. Instead of your firstborn dying, you must kill a lamb and put its blood on your door. And then the angel of death will pass over your house because he will recognize that you have killed the lamb in place of the firstborn. And there's so, so much significance here. Just points straight to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, In the New Testament, he's called our sacrificial lamb. He's the one who died in our place so that we didn't have to. His blood was spilled. Yep. Through him, we can escape the inescapable death, you know, for which our sins deserve. He took that on. So the Israelites were to keep the Passover to remember this story 
having yet no context about Jesus. Mm. We can look back and easily be like, look how that points to Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. But for them, it was just each year we get together and we remember that the Lord did that. And I want to spend some time on this because they believe that we need to keep the Passover. But think about this just for a minute. Every single year, every single Israelite keeps this feast and remembers that their firstborns were spared because a lamb was sacrificed. They praised God for their redemption from slavery. They were literal slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, right? They were slaves. They were headed for death. They were rescued. And this is a real story, a real historical narrative that God orchestrated to point to Jesus. And he's the new and better sacrificial lamb who dies for everyone so we could live, who redeems us from the slavery of our sin and frees us from captivity fallen the devil. It's interesting if you imagine that each year while keeping this feast and remembering all these things, the question might arise in their minds. We've been rescued from Egypt, but we keep falling into being enslaved to all these other other people. Mm-hmm. When will a final rescue come? The rhythm of remembering all these good things the Lord has done and the way he has rescued in the past inevitably is going to beg the question of, wait, but I'm enslaved to the Assyrians right now. Mm-hmm. When is a final rescue coming? Yeah. I feel enslaved to sin. Like I'm having a really hard time following the law. I question my status with God. Like when is a final redemption from that coming? That's exactly what Jesus has done. And so I wanted to point to just a couple passages in the New Testament that make this connection. Romans 6, 18 says, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. Ephesians 2 talks about how even though at one time Gentiles, the uncircumcised, were separated from Christ and alienated from Israel and strangers to the covenant, having no hope without God in the world because they didn't keep the law because they didn't, you know, they weren't part of that first covenant given by Moses and all that. But now in Christ, you who were once far off, you've been brought near for he's our peace. He's brought down the dividing wall of hostility, all of this. And then in verse 15, it says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So the law of commands expressed in ordinances, meaning the rules and commands that every Jew used to have to follow, it's been abolished. And yet putting this together with what Jesus says when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. We know that somehow all at once it's been abolished and it's been fulfilled. I would almost say it's been abolished because it's been fulfilled. The difference is the law has not just been thrown away because it's not good anymore or it doesn't work or whatever. It did what it was meant to do. It pointed out our sin and our need for a savior, but it's been fulfilled in what Christ has now done. So now if we're believing in Christ and what he's done and recognizing that we need him as a savior, then we're doing what the law always wanted, I would say. What was intended intended to do and but what it but what it could never accomplish. This should inform what we believe about keeping the Passover and communion. The World Mission Society Church of God believes that, you know, we're in the new covenant and we have to keep the Passover and they cite a couple passages to you know, to claim that they cite Luke 22, seven through 20, which is just a passage about not the Passover exactly, but the Lord's supper or communion. Mm -hmm. Um, it just says, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So this is happening during the Jewish Passover. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And he took bread, gave things and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So the World Mission Society Church of God look at this and they say, oh, it says new covenant. So it must mean that we have to keep the Passover because we see here that Jesus is keeping the Passover. But this is an incredibly important passage. It's actually the defining one to mark the transition of why don't Christians keep the Passover anymore? Why instead do we do the Lord's Supper or communion? Mm -hmm. You know, instead of sitting down to this like full meal with all these different things we needed to eat and all these different things we needed to say, which is kind of the Passover model, which was specifically designed to remember their redemption from slavery in Egypt and the angel passing over. Now we sit down, we drink a little wine or a little juice, and we eat a little bread or a little cracker, and we remember Christ's body and blood given up and broken for us. The whole reason for the substitution is because the Passover, that very act, and then that annual feast was always pointing to Christ. And so when Christ sits down during the Passover and inaugurates this new ceremony, all about him and his body and his blood Mm -hmm. before he's actually crucified. He's making it clear that I'm your Passover lamb. My body and blood are going to be spilled for you. Do this in remembrance of me, not in remembrance of the Passover. Yep, totally. Do this in remembrance of me. So, yeah, I would just say that's why Christians don't keep the Passover anymore. Mm -hmm. Unless they, like, really want to. You know, some of them do just for... To experience what it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's not a requirement. And the other verse that they use, the only other verse I could find that they cite for why you have to keep the Passover to be saved is John 6, 53 through 54. And that just says, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son and man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Well, right off the bat, we know that we can't quite take this literally, mm-hmm. right? Because Jesus' flesh and blood are long gone. Yep. But this verse and how to understand it is actually the basis for, like, all the different ways that Christian churches do communion. Like, the Catholic Church, for example, believes in transubstantiation, which mm-hmm. is that the body and blood are actually present in the bread and the wine. Mm-hmm. And something mysterious and sacred happens when they pray over the elements of, you know, bread and wine, and it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. And so they would say, no, this this verse isn't being like metaphorical or whatever you want to call it, but it's it's saying actually do it, and we do, because it becomes the body and blood. Most Protestants have understood that this verse is a way of saying, Jesus saying, like, you have to believe what I've done for you. Why my blood was spilled, why my body was broken, and that it wasn't for nothing, but it was on purpose for you. Even the idea of like, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I mean, we do it as a way to symbolize our remembrance of what he's done, just like, you know, the verse we just read talks about, Luke 22. But for me, I read this and I'm almost like, is that a way of saying, like, it's not just a way to agree? Like, I believe, you know, I I agree, Jesus, what you did was Mm -hmm. what you did and why you did it but that I also want to partake of that for myself. Like, it's almost like in communion, a way, like eating the bread, drinking the wine is saying, I need you. Mm-hmm. I, this isn't just something outside of myself, something extra, something far off. But what you've done on the cross, your body and blood being broken and spilled for me, I want that to apply to me. That's like kind of what we're saying when we partake of it. Well, moving on from the Passover, the World Mission Society Church of God also says the new covenant includes observing the annual feasts. And they cite John 7, the whole chapter. And and honestly, I read this chapter and the only thing that happens in it is just 
Jesus goes to a feast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nowhere does it say, like, if you truly follow me, you must observe the feast or anything like that. It's it's just him going. And then they cite Luke 4, 16, where Jesus goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, neither of which use words like new covenant and neither of which use any didactic language, I would mm-hmm. say, of yeah. like, you must do this or you should do this or anything. It's, it's just following Jesus and what he's doing. And like we said before, Jesus lived in a different time in redemptive history. What he did as a part of his mission is different from our mission as followers of him. Mm -hmm. So it definitely makes sense that he would keep the Sabbath, keep the feast. But we don't need to read into that, that we also have to do those things. To kind of sum up that thought, I just wanted to share one more quote by R.C. Sprawl where he says, Our tasks as obedient children to God are not exactly the same as Jesus's mission. He says, I was not set into this world to save human from their sins. I can never speak with absolute authority about anything like Jesus did. I cannot go into the church with a whip and drive corrupt pastors out. I am not the Lord of the church. So I like those things as examples of things that obviously Jesus was right and good in doing. And he sent a message to them about who he is. But we shouldn't emulate those things because we're not him. We follow him, but we're not out to prove that we are the son of God here to save people's sins. Another rule for interpreting scripture that is laid out in knowing scripture is the rule interpret the implicit by the explicit. So implicit just means implied rather than expressly stated and explicit is what is expressly stated. And sometimes we look at the implicit and we draw inferences and hold beliefs that directly contradict scripture that is explicit. I think this is probably a rule that really applies to what the World Mission Society Church of God does with their belief that God is mother. Mm -hmm. They take just a few verses in scripture that are not at all explicit. They don't say anything like God is mother, our mother God, or or anything like that. And they imply their way Mm -hmm. into a belief in God the mother based on almost nothing at all. The problem is that we have many explicit passages that say that God is father and that's how we should relate to him. We even have really clear passages that say that how we relate to God is not up to us. We don't have the freedom to relate to God in whatever way we want, Mm -hmm. to just call him mother because we want to. He has defined himself to us as father. It's a biblical term used over and over and over and over, and he's never referred to himself as our mother. It honestly makes me think of the story of the golden calf Mm -hmm. when Moses is on Mount Sinai meeting with the Lord. Aaron is down with all the people who time is passing. They're getting restless, and they immediately do something that the Lord, they had to have known the Lord would not be okay with. And yet they don't know the Lord's not okay with it. So they make an idol of a golden calf. And most commentators don't think that they were just, oh, I'm going to worship a different God, a golden Mm -hmm. calf God now. Most commentators are saying, no, this was their way to try to connect or relate to the true God that Moses was meeting with on Mount Mm -hmm. Sinai. And their way of doing that was to take one aspect of that God, perhaps his strength, represented by the calf Mm -hmm. and to make an idol out of it. Mm -hmm. And then they felt much more comfortable bowing down to this golden calf than going up on the mountain as they were invited to do, right? But then Mm -hmm. they say, no, Moses, you go up for us. We can't go up. And so Aaron and the people are severely punished and God's wrath is made very clear because of the way that they chose to try to relate to God that he did not sanction. I think this is made clear other ways too, but the bottom line is we, we don't have that freedom to just call God whatever we 
we want, to define him in the ways that we think. We are meant to treat scripture carefully and reverently and fearfully, Mm -hmm. even in the way that we relate to God and what we believe about him. So one example of God being defined as father is in Matthew 6. Jesus is explicitly teaching the disciples how to pray and who to pray to when he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The Lord's Prayer starts off with us recognizing God as our Father. Does not say our Father and Mother. Does not say our Mother. And I just can't think of any reason why if God really were Mother and Father, that would be completely hidden from us in the explicit teaching of Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's like seemingly if there is a mother, we're supposed to just completely ignore her and not pay her any attention at all because we've got lots and lots about the father, explicit commands on how to worship him, how to relate to him. We've got lots about Jesus. We've got lots about the Holy Spirit and we've got nothing about God the mother. Mm -hmm. There's a YouTuber who makes videos about contradicting the World Mission Society Church of God and at one point he just says, so many people have read and studied and tried to interpret scripture over the last 2,000 years, many of which are hostile to Christianity, Mm -hmm. many of which are looking at the Bible and trying to poke holes, Mm -hmm. trying to find other theologies, other doctrines, other things to follow. Atheists study scripture. People at Harvard who don't think that God is real study the Bible, all these sorts of things. And yet these people are the only ones who read the passages they're reading and say, look, God is mother. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just think that's worth stating. You know what I mean? Like, no one throughout history. No one else is thinking that he's mother. Not at all. Even people that are not believers are very hostile towards Christianity. Yeah. If you came to the Bible without that assumption, you would never find it. Yeah. So when I was approached by the World Mission Society Church of God people, they took me to Genesis and then also passage in Revelation to try and show me that God is mother. So could you talk a little bit about those passages? Yes. Let's look at Genesis 1. The passage that they take you to is Genesis 1, 26, and it says, Uh, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. They look at this passage, which I read two verses, 26 and 27, and they say that the us, the plural, let us make man in our image after our likeness points to not just God the Father, but they say also God the Mother. Coupled with that is they use an argument from analogy, which is not a good way to approach the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, as we said, we're meant to approach the Bible extremely carefully, only going by what God has revealed and said is absolutely true and not just making things up, you know, based on how we see the world or what else do we believe or whatever, but they make an argument from analogy along the lines of, you know, every living thing has a mother and father, right? So God must be the same. God must be mother and father mm-hmm. because he's creating, you know, in chapter one. So. Saying that God is limited by how humans function and operate and regenerate. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They are limiting God. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a good way to put it. Yeah. That because it takes a man and a woman to make a baby here, that to make us, God must not just be the father as he claims, but there must also have been a mother involved. And that's probably who the plural is. There are multiple other views on how to explain the plural in this passage. I would say the most popular is 
that it's a nod to the Trinity. Yeah. Another one is perhaps God was referring to himself the way that royal people sometimes do. If I'm like the Queen of England, let our royal chariot go down to the yeah. royal pavilion. Or I don't know. I yeah. just made that up. But yeah, there's there's this sense in which this is a way that sometimes royalty speaks of themselves and perhaps that's what it is. I mean, I say that too, like we're gonna do this, but I'm just referring to myself. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Another interpretation is perhaps he's addressing his angelic host mm-hmm. and you know as he looks at the world and saying let us make man but i find that one less likely because he's saying after our likeness and mm-hmm. i don't know and if we, we are can separate. assume yeah the angels talks about that in hebrews totally yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure yeah so personally i go with the trinity route um let us make man in our image uh especially because the trinity is present in genesis Genesis 1 where it says in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters so we got the spirit of god we are assuming in verse 3 that this is god the father and then if you're reading john 1 which comes a lot later it's shining shining light on the creation account as Mm -hmm. if to say and god the son was also present in the creating words of god Mm -hmm. that he is the word of god and he was in the beginning with god and he was god and he was with god and all that so i i don't think we need to look for a mother here that it's inexplicable or unexplainable at all i think there's good explanations and i think one of the best rebuttals to this idea that God the Father couldn't have created us on his own, but that it is God the Mother and Father creating, Mm -hmm. it directly contradicts that second verse I read, 27, where it says, so God created man in his own image. Singular and masculine pronouns used there. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you've got singular masculine pronouns doing the actual creating. And in their argument, it's not just God the Father creating, couldn't be, but it's God the Father and the Mother creating. I remember pointing that out uh, in that passage to them. And I was like, it says he created them, not they created them. I just felt like I was going around in a circle over and over again. I'm sure they'll probably come back and be like, no, it's actually not. (laughs) When you're already coming to scripture with that kind of mentality and method of like we'll just grab things and make them fit it's not hard to just keep arguing against reason (laughs) but um otherwise i would say how can you argue with that it's Mm -hmm. so clear and actually before we go to the revelation passage i want to talk about one other rule of biblical interpretation um, from knowing scripture and that rule is to interpret the bible literally which actually doesn't mean what some probably hearing that think it means. I don't mean that we ignore all the metaphor and all the poetry and just interpret everything as literal fact. Mm. R.C. Sproul defines the literal sense as the grammatical historical sense or the meaning which the writer expressed. So when we interpret literally, we're trying to first look at the historical context. What is the meaning the context gives? And then we read it according to the rules of literature. So 
according to the natural rules of grammar, speech, syntax, context. I like that definition of just like, what meaning is the writer trying to express? Yeah. The, the author who wrote this, inspired by God, what were they trying to say? That's the grammatical, historical, or literal context. And one big example of where the World Mission Society Church of God fails to do this is when they take you to Revelation 21 and say that it supports God as mother. Mm-hmm. I think they are taking it completely out of context and just ignoring the obvious context, which is there. So let's look at Revelation 21 9 through 10. It says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We just jumped right in. Um, The author of this passage, widely accepted as John, is having a vision of incredible, like heavenly things and beings one of the angels in his vision is saying, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And in the very next verse, what does that angel show him? Not a woman, not a person, but a city. Yeah. He shows him a city. Come, I'll show you the bride. And then one sentence later, and then he showed me the city, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The passage itself is not hard to understand. And it says this again later, too. It's not the only time where it says that it's a city. The Bible Project does podcasts on major themes that run throughout the Bible. And one of their latest is actually on the theme of the city. So if you feel like you have further questions of, you know, like, why is the bride a city? I don't Mm -hmm. get that or I don't believe that. That might actually be a good place to start because, again, biblical theology is going to help us understand why God revealing a holy city in the last book of the Bible is significant. Mm -hmm. It's going to touch on things like Eden was a garden and it was kind of this perfect paradise and it was great. But we were always meant to go beyond that. We have what theologians call like the cultural mandate to Mm -hmm. be fruitful and multiply, have Have dominion. dominion Yeah. And so things like cities or technology or artwork or whatever, like these aren't not good because no, we're supposed to be in a garden. Like we're always supposed to create Create and be innovative. Yeah, absolutely. We're made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. He's creative and innovative and fun and smart, you know, and so we're supposed to be all these things too. And so cities are good, except in the Bible, cities are bad. You almost always see a city and it's like even moving towards Egypt is always a sign that someone is moving towards sinfulness or depending on earthly strength instead of depending on God or, um, gosh, you got Babel, you know, Mm -hmm. you've got cities that just represent vice, corruption, and evil. They are seen in the Bible usually as places where greed leads people to take advantage of others and all these sorts of things. And so the image of Jerusalem as the holy city for the first time coming down from heaven as the lamb's bride is a pretty awesome picture of how God plans to renew and redeem all that evil. The city. Yeah. Yeah, Like this is not what city was meant to be like. Mm -hmm. Here's what I always meant for this to be like, that you would follow the cultural mandate, but that you would do it in a way that actually honors me. And that would give you this beautiful picture of a holy city. I won't keep going there. We don't want to get too deep into the weeds with that, but it's not nothing is what I'm trying to say. It's significant that this is a city and not a person. It's a bride because it's the city of Jerusalem. It's the church represented there as the city, right? Like Mm -hmm. Jerusalem was always the holy city where Israelites lived, God's chosen people. And now this holy city of Jerusalem is symbolizing God's church, his bride, in the way that they were always supposed to be. Hmm. No longer 
running from him or being adulterers or worshiping other gods, but belonging to him, no longer corruption and greed and all this gross stuff that goes along with being in cities, but a beautiful holy city as God's bride, the church. In rebuttal to that, the church of God would say, we are the body of Christ Mm -hmm. as Christians. The church is the body of Christ. We can't also be the bride. So this idea is, I think, directly contradicted in Ephesians 5. This is the passage that's talking a lot about husbands and wives Mm -hmm. representing Christ in the church. We'll actually see in just a couple of verses that the church is both described as Christ's body and as his bride, mm-hmm. right there. Same passage, yeah, same both verse. Both metaphors. Both metaphors us, used yeah. together, yeah. I'll just read part of this. Ephesians 5, let me start in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So we've already got husband, head of wife, Christ, head of the church. So we've got the husband and wife thing compared right there. And then it literally in the same breath, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not only is the husband and wife metaphor entwined here Mm -hmm. with Christ and the church, but even the church is being referred to as a her. Yes. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. (laughs) So we've got the body, the wife, the bride thing all here together over and over. It's just super clear. And it's the way that theologians have read and understood this for so long that we are definitely Christ's body, but we're also his bride. The church is Christ's bride. And so to say out of nowhere, just because we don't want the bride to be a city, that no, we can't be his bride. It can't be the church. You know, the city must stand for God the mother. I just don't see any other, even if I wanted to, if I was on a speech and debate team, Mm -hmm. I don't know how I would define or justify that. And they don't seem to go any further. Hmm. I think that's all I had to share. What feels Does anything feel unfinished or left unsaid or questions left unanswered? I remember them pointing to like one more passage in Revelation that talked about like the bride giving life or something. Oh, yes. And they talked about like how the church can't, isn't the one that gives life. So it has to be referring to something else. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's good. Yes. I'd actually had that here to talk about and then just totally skipped past it. Yeah. So even on their website, they say... God the mother is important because the Bible says we must go to her to receive eternal life. And then they quote Revelation 22, 17, which is just one chapter after the Revelation passage we were just at. And it says, the spirit and the bread say, come, take the free gift of the water of life. So let's look at Revelation 22, 17 really quick. The full passage is the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Um, Let me read right from their website because I don't want to mess this up. They say, word for word, here, the spirit in accordance with the Trinity is God our father and the bride of our father is God our mother. The spirit and the bride call God's people to come to them to receive eternal life, salvation. What, What strikes 
he was uh, not quite right about those sorts of statements, you know, just off the bat. They completely warped the verse. Like, the verse does not say that at all. Even in what you read before, like, they used an ellipsis and made it into a sentence that says something completely different than the original passage says. Yeah, they left out some key context yeah, there, really for sure. Key context. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know even where to start refuting this, not because it's hard, but because there's too many ways to do it. And that's one of the first ones that they, seems like manipulating this verse to make it look like it's just, I don't know why they do that, to make it look like it's just the spirit and the bride, when really it's the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come. I mean, first off, we know from how we looked at Revelation 22 a minute ago, right, that the bride and the wife of the lamb is a city, the church. That was pretty clearly established. And so when we hear that the bride is saying come and the spirit is saying come, we're to understand that here finally, you know, at the end of all things, the bride of Christ, the church, is holy and beautiful. And they're going to say like, come, this is a good thing. Eternal life is offered to you. And and then it even says, let the one who hears say, come. So anyone who wants salvation, it just says, take the free gift of the water of life. Anyone who's thirsty. And so it says the spirit, which is significant, because if you were to do like a little systematic theology of the spirit, you would find that he does have a distinct role and that it's to convict that the spirit is like the wind calling people to come to know the Lord, right? Like mm-hmm. that you don't, scripture talks about the spirit as if you don't know which way that he's going to come, just as you don't know which way the wind is going to blow, but that he brings people to know God. So we understand the Holy Spirit as the one who, who draws people to God initially upon them putting their faith in God, that they didn't just do that on their own, but there's good reason to believe and evidence from scripture to say that God was involved even in drawing people to himself mm-hmm. and that the spirit was the one doing that. So we talked before about how the church of God are modalists and at least a lot of their language is leaning that way. And I think here's a good example because they look at this and they say here, the spirit in accordance with the Trinity is God, our father in accordance with Orthodox Christianity and how they've always understood the Trinity, the Spirit is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Mm -hmm. And yet they're all one. It's difficult because it is complex and mysterious. You know, like we can't explain all the ins and outs of the Trinity, which is why actually those, um, like the best attempt is just guardrails to what Mm -hmm. you can't say. Mm -hmm. And what you can't say is that they're the same. But what you need to say is that they're not the same. They are distinct. They are persons, but they are one God. Um, and so, so that's definitely a, a modalist language to say, like the spirit in, is in reference to God, our father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. No, it's completely discarding how we've understand the tr- understood the Trinity mm-hmm. and just trying to get it so that you can have the father and the bride in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and but you don't have that. You have yeah. the spirit and the bride. Um, and it makes sense to have the Holy Spirit because he is the person of God who is most involved in calling people to God, mm-hmm. which is what's happening right now. Come. I mean, I think this argument really falls apart when we look at passages where all three persons of the Trinity are present at once. Mm-hmm. This is the basic rebuttal to any modalist theology, right? Like you can't have God just manifesting as different modes if he is present 
in all three modes at once. At the same time. So we've got, like we already said, we've got creation mm-hmm. and Jesus baptism. got Jesus' baptism. I mean, that's a great example. In in the same moment, in the same instant, we have Jesus in the water being baptized, God the Father speaking from, you know, in the clouds, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then we've got the Holy Spirit descending like a dove onto mm-hmm. Jesus. So how can God be different modes? How can the Spirit be God the Father if we see God the Father up in the clouds speaking and the Spirit down descending on Jesus and mm-hmm. these sorts of things? He can't um, be all three modes at once. He can't be all three modes at once. And Water cannot be missed. Water and <laughs> That's <same> right. <laughs> That's right. That's the modalist uh, metaphor, yeah. the metaphor that yeah. they like. Well, this is already a super long episode, but I do feel like we covered kind of the major claims that they make and some of the major ways to, yeah, I think understand it rightly, understand it differently. So maybe if we think of anything else that went unsaid or any uncertain, we'll have time in another episode to slip it in. But sounds great. 